talking with Dave McClure, um, who's now with the Founders Fund. I actually met Dave like 10 years ago when we were both just doing little bits and stuff in Silicon Valley, and um, we had a couple of, of cool dinners together. And Dave's really taken off out in the valley as like the, the, one of the big networking guys. Um, he's on Twitter and Facebook constantly and putting out a lot of interesting content and is now um, part of the Founders Fund. So I guess he's, he's turned into a VC. Um, Dave, thanks a lot for joining yeah. us, and tell us a little bit what's going on. Uh, thanks, Adrian. I, I think I'm probably one of the most uh, dangerous people alive with, uh, you know, sharp-tooled objects. So the fact that I have any, any amount of money as a VC at all is probably a crazy thing, but I'm having a blast. <laughs> cool. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you came from? I mean, I know you, you had a Asia consulting firm and some of the stuff you've done in the past and sort of get us to where you're at today. Right. Um, well, actually, I, I was... Um, I started out as a developer. Um, I guess I came out uh, to Silicon Valley uh, in late 80s, 1989, and started out um, out here as a database developer and programmer, and then started uh, started a company that was an internet and e-commerce company. I guess it started out being more the consulting company I was using to do some work for Intel and Microsoft, and uh, gradually, you know, added a few friends to that company and. That became my first uh, venture of sorts and uh, probably did everything you could possibly do wrong as an initial business owner, but uh, it was a very useful set of lessons, uh, and I surprisingly managed to get a small acquisition uh, that occurred out of that. Uh, I guess along the way, I kind of made a transition from being, uh, you know, primarily a, a developer, an engineer, into being, you know, sort of a small business owner and then... I guess more technology marketing and uh, to some extent technology evangelism, I guess we call it now. And and that sort of stuck with me. I've really been enjoying kind of being a very extroverted and outgoing geek, uh, and I, I call myself that uh, rather proudly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, subsequent to that, had the great opportunity to, to be at PayPal for a few years um, and uh, running sort of a developer network program there that was also – kind of a technology education and technology marketing function. Um, after that, ran marketing at Simply Hired for a little while and also became an investor at Simply Hired. And then really, I think over the last five years, uh, got more you know, into doing angel investing on a, on a personal basis, um, somewhat you know, haphazard and then more regular. And uh, I guess about a year ago, um, you know, started getting to know and talking to the Founders Fund guys who were some ex-PayPal people I used to uh, work with and uh, jumped in with them more formally. Um, and so now I've been running a number of different programs, but really um, uh, sort of running a seed stage investment program for Founders Fund internally um, and have been doing both uh, some investments as well as some some education and outreach uh, evangelism programs for entrepreneurship um, that are just really a lot of fun. Um, so I guess that's that's sort of the last 20 years uh, in a very short order. Uh, a couple of other things along the way I can, I'm sure we can talk about a little bit as we go forward. Sure. Um, well, you're, you're obviously there's one, you've raised one really interesting point, and we see it all over the media about the, the PayPal mafia. Um, <laughs> yes. Do you want to tell us? I mean, tell us a little bit about what that actually is and, and what that means. Uh, well, first of all, I'd have to say I'm really just a very low-level henchman in the PayPal mafia. <laughs> um, but uh, for 
for one reason or another, I'm not exactly sure that I, I know the whole story here. Um, you know, there's been a, a disproportionate number of people that have been entrepreneurially focused that came out of PayPal. And so, uh, you know, probably most notably, I think, you know, Reed Hoffman, who's, who started LinkedIn, um, you know, Jod Karim, Steve Chen, and Chad Hurley, who started YouTube, uh, Jeremy Stoffelman and Russ Simmons, who started Yelp, um, David Sachs, um, who has done Genie and Yammer, and also, you know, as well has produced some, some very cool movies. Um, and, you know, the list kind of goes on. I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two other things, but uh, Max Levchin also, who is the uh, co-founder of PayPal along with Peter Thiel, uh, Max, ended up founding Slide. Um, Peter, the uh, former CEO, founder of, of PayPal, went on to start his own hedge fund, uh, Clarion Capital, and then eventually um, started Founders Fund as, you know, the private equity side of that, um, which is where I've, I've ended up. I, th- I think that's at least the folks that I remember off the top of my head. Uh, Rulof Bota also is over at Sequoia as one of the youngest partners uh, at Sequoia. So um, it's really, I don't know, kind of um, strange that I get uh, rolled into that group of folks. I have not uh, not created a billion-dollar company like many of those other folks, uh, but I, I think there's many of us who who uh, sort of shine in the uh, in the backdrop of all the rest of those folks who've done great great things. Well, but your um, star is still rising, so you're on the way up, and and still coming out of that crowd. Would you not agree with that? Um, I, I hope you're absolutely correct, but I, I certainly uh, I, I certainly know that I get a lot of benefit from the association with all those folks. That's probably not as well deserved as. Uh, and throw a comment them. on your Twitter feed. I mean, any time I log into Twitter or on Facebook, it's like Dave McClure all the time, and someone else is like quoting that, and you, I guess you retweet it. It's hilarious. I mean, everywhere you go, there's Dave. <laughs> Uh, I post, think it is, it is true that I'm a very uh, outgoing uh, person in the valley, and uh, you know I will I will admit to going to an evening event or two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm I'm real quick to, to delete people that aren't, aren't interesting, and I mean I, I read all this stuff both on Facebook and on Twitter because you post really interesting stuff. Well, thank you, Adrian. I, uh, that's very kind. I I must say that I'm. I spend a lot of time on those tools, and I'm, I'm probably addicted to them in almost every sense of the word, but um, hopefully I'm not too annoying with all the stuff that I'm, I'm doing on there. No, it's good stuff. Um, with the, pay, the, PayPal, the PayPal guys, aside from Peter, have any of the, 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 like, the big shining guys, have any of them um, done a startup that's not related to viral marketing? Um. Trying to think. Well, I mean, certainly David Sachs, uh, you know, had a pretty amazing success with "Thank You for Smoking," which was a, a movie that was an independent right. production. Right, in the movie. Uh, right, um, and I, you know, I don't. Those of us who worked with David internally knew he was, uh, you know, sort of a very exacting taskmaster when it terms to copy edit for the site, and and so seeing him as kind of a, a movie producer and writer uh, or executive producer of, of sorts. Actually, wasn't did he actually surprised. make the movie? I thought those guys just invested in it and didn't actually didn't actually do anything. Um, I mean, I think they probably did invest in it, but I, I actually think that David probably had a hand here or there in in some of the things that happened with that. So you know, it's hard to say. Uh, one of the things that's always interesting is success has many mothers out here in uh, Silicon Valley, or success has many fathers. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, it is 
It is really curious. Uh, a lot of the businesses were were definitely uh, based on some amount of consumer internet focus. Uh, in some cases, viral marketing. In some cases, you know, search engine optimization. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's definitely a couple of different trends that were um, common to many of those businesses. Uh, but but probably I think the thing that's just kind of most surprising is um, you know the sheer uh, number of people you know that came out of uh, came out of PayPal that ended up starting you know some form of business that became relatively well known um, you know at least in the well, last. Well, but that, five to me years. they um, they really saw viral marketing take off of PayPal and so they went and just each of them went and pushed that. I mean, slide viral yeah. marketing through Facebook, Yelp with virally driven um, signups. Um, um, I, I think there's a pretty solid acquisition strategy, you know, for customers for almost all of those. But I, I would say that, you know, a couple of people have learned things about search that wasn't necessarily part of any of the DNA at PayPal. Um, but, but really, I think the thing that was probably most notable, uh, and I, I really had a very recent opportunity to talk to Peter about this, was that PayPal was really a crucible <laughs> of sorts. It was just it was a very challenging environment. Uh there was a lot of people who were, you know, probably not interested in PayPal succeeding, uh, you know, and among them were, you know, other financial institutions, banks, uh, legal entities, eBay at various times, um card associations. I, I think it was just it was always a very challenging uh environment and you know I, I think a lot of people use the the aphorism that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. <laughs> and so pretty much everybody at PayPal had this, you know, infused into their DNA as they were in, incredibly uh paranoid about survival and, and really trying to just be as focused as they could on, on surviving. Um and I, I think for whatever reason, that that made a lot of people who came out of PayPal just very focused on how to get things up and off the ground. Uh, you know, viral marketing being one of them, but also just being, you know, incredibly conservative and and somewhat cheap on customer acquisition strategies. Um, and uh, and really, I think understanding just how internet marketing works. Um, you know, which there there are a ton of think, companies. Do you feel that, it's more like a core understanding of internet marketing itself rather than just viral marketing and 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 startup stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think so because there, there's a lot of other companies that have been successful based on you know engineering culture. Um, you know, and, and certainly I would say PayPal was largely an engineering-driven culture, um, but it was different than you know the way Google is about engineers. I mean, I think if if there was maybe one thing, I would say that we were you know, there's a pretty long and, and interesting series of essays that I think either David Sachs wrote or or someone did did an interview wrote with him that, that talked about how he was thinking about customer acquisition. Um and it just wasn't anything that you'd ever heard, you know, out of um either this business driven culture or an engineering driven culture, you know, where engineers were sort of focused on you know, cool features and, and products and a typical business organization was focused on sort of, you know, spreadsheets and, you know, graphs and numbers. And But when you heard, you know, David talk about things, it was kind of like, okay, how do we get an incremental customer at a very minimal market uh, cost? And then how does that translate into, you know, very, very specific and, and bare-bones features? And I think a lot of the techniques that people now are starting to associate with very, um, you know, Acquisition-focused startups and and nimble, you know, internet marketing. A lot of those ideas, I think, were things that people were were playing with fairly early at PayPal uh, around 2001, 2002, or so.
Yeah, well, and I guess we're getting on to being almost 10 years later. It is, uh, yeah, it's been a while now since uh, a lot of that stuff happened, strangely enough. Do you, um, I mean, personal opinion, if, uh, do you think PayPal, or would PayPal have been better off if it had stayed independent and had those guys driving it forward? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. There was, there was definitely uh, a couple of factors that drove, you know, the acquisition. Um, you know, one of them was that a large percentage of PayPal's business um, was happening on the eBay marketplace, you know, probably more than half, probably close to two-thirds at the time. Um, the other thing was there was a, a reasonable amount of, of revenue that PayPal was earning from, from two particular markets, uh, one, the gaming gaming business or gambling business and the adult services business, shall we say. Um, and, and those two businesses were ones that I think, uh, you know, the, the U.S. government was not necessarily so interested in seeing online companies uh, perform. And so I think Facebook, uh, excuse me, PayPal was facing a decision about, you know, how do we handle these two, you know, lines of business that, you know, it might be high growth and profitable for us but are likely to face a lot of litigation. Um, and then also, you know, just from a relatively nuts and bolts perspective on, you know, any type of acquisition, um, PayPal was always going to be more valuable to eBay than almost any other company. Um, and so it was relatively difficult to arrange, you know, any type of competitive acquisition where there was more than one player who had, uh, you know, as large and valued an interest in PayPal. And, and really what ended up happening was PayPal went public as kind of the, you know, the second alternative to to Meg Whitman at eBay buying PayPal, and finally only after going public, uh, you know, and sort of valuing the company that way, uh, was a deal um, worked out for for PayPal to be acquired by eBay. Um, and then as a result of that, they they pretty much shed their their efforts in the adult and gaming businesses. And, and so I you know I certainly think that many people look at PayPal and say, well, if we'd remained independent, we would have been you know this huge company uh, that was much bigger than I think the billion and a half or so that eBay acquired it at. Uh, but there was sort of this turning point transition that, that PayPal had been facing uh, that would have been much more challenging, you know, going alone as an independent if they decided to keep those businesses. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, you know, in, in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, you know, if they'd taken more, you know, extreme steps and, and set it up in proper ways, you know, PayPal might have been this 10, 20, you know, $50 billion company. But they might not have been PayPal. They could have ended up as like a, a small subsidiary of Bank of, Bank of America. <laughs> right. Or they could have been Bank litigated of off the face of the planet or they'd have to maybe move to an offshore environment. There's there just a lot of large and significant challenges that I, I think weren't as easy to, you know, maybe navigate with with right. know, full foresight. Uh, and, you know, all things being equal, a billion and a half dollar payday probably isn't the uh, end of the world. <laughs> Yeah, well, although the founders didn't end up making as much as the, a lot of other guys did. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's true, and I, I think that is one of the smaller, less told stories uh, is probably, you know, that due to all the capital that um, PayPal and actually also X.com had raised um, and the companies had merged, uh, I think, around the 2000 time frame, um, that really um, a lot of the, you know, equity holders were, were not the founders. They were outside uh, investors. Um, and certainly, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a great story for all involved, and I think, you know, a lot of people made money. But relatively, relatively speaking, I think the, you know, the founders did not end up with as huge paydays as many other people might have thought based on the numbers. 
I was disappointed to see that because I think guys like Max and um, and the others worked really hard and they deserve more. Incredibly hard. I mean, that was the other thing was that the the culture at PayPal was really you know driven to almost uh, an extreme, and uh, it was it was not unusual at all to see people there. You know, even after the company had gone public, to see people working until midnight, and you know, I, you know, it was both fun as well as you know, built burned into the culture that we. We played hard and worked hard and, and had a lot of people there staying late. Um, but but I do think there's maybe an interesting other, you know, uh, footnote to that PayPal Mafia story, which is it, it may have been that people there, you know, felt like they didn't really uh, get as much of uh, the benefit as they had put into it uh, or or at least that they, you know, maybe left a lot of money on the table for the investors as opposed to themselves and, and many of them, you know, kind of wanted to go back and uh, really prove that out, and, and we're still kind of hungry. So it's possible that because people were so uh, driven and still a little bit hungry after the PayPal uh, you know, payday that many of them went on to start their own businesses too. Oh, right. So that's – okay, that makes sense. So they'd seen a model work. They'd seen viral acquisition work. They, they knew how to get things done. They had contacts. They had a reputation because it was PayPal, and, and so that – yeah, that makes sense. And and so out of that then came uh, a certain little enterprise called the Founders Fund. Yeah, and uh, that was started I think probably around 2004. So originally it was a 50 million dollar fund that was a pretty early stage fund, and and then later um, a couple of years ago I believe Sean Parker also joined, uh, you know Ken Howery and Luke Nozick and and Peter Thiel. Um, out of Facebook, and then they raised a slightly larger fund, about $220 million fund, uh, which is the one they've been operating for the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, again, I think Peter has always been, uh, Peter Thiel had always been a pretty amazing person for identifying talent and, you know, both in, in bringing people into PayPal and then subsequent to that doing a lot of individual angel investing. Um, and, you know, I guess, uh, you know, Peter through also Ken and Luke and, and Sean, uh, those folks have been able to, to get involved in a lot of really amazing businesses uh, relatively early. Um, and, and probably, again, I think that, that skill in viral marketing and Internet marketing has been very helpful in both getting them into interesting companies and as well as maybe helping them be successful. And so one of the one of the tenets of the uh, founders fund, as, my, as I understand it, is that they do take it's a founders fund because it's about taking care of founders and making sure they get well compensated for starting up companies. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, and and you know again that may be from feeling that you know they didn't necessarily have as much of that uh, you know opportunity when they were doing their own businesses. But I'd, I'd say the main thing that that founders fund tries to distinguish from other companies is that you know it's built by people who built their own companies. Uh, and so, you know, uh, in particular, there's been a lot of the DNA of three companies, in particular, uh, PayPal, Facebook, and Google, that represent a lot of the people on the investment team. Um, and that, you know, those those three companies have had uh, a lot of engineering-driven success, a lot of focused founder efforts, um, and, you know, just not really the most traditional uh, VC approach to investing, I think, you know, at least over the past 10 to 20 years, a lot, a lot more of the VC community has come out of the uh, financial services and money management uh, world. And, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. That's just kind of how the business has evolved. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true that both, you know, Peter and, and PayPal were also cut from that cloth. But I, I think the one difference that we try to make uh, known is 
most of the people involved in investing at a founder's fund have been involved in doing their own own companies, at least at some size or other. Um, so, and, I mean, why why did you join Founders Fund rather than do some of the other stuff you have going on? <laughs> well, uh, to be honest, I was uh, working on raising my own fund at the time uh, last summer when the market went through uh, a relatively significant amount of turmoil. <laughs> but um, Sean uh, Sean approached me. I I got to know him a little bit through uh, both you know the PayPal uh, community as well as the Facebook community. Um, and he, you know, really made me a compelling offer to come in and do some of the work that I'd been wanting to do, uh, you know, through the vehicle, uh, through the umbrella of the Founders Fund. So um, I don't, I don't think I'd be able to do what I'm doing and the kind of projects that I'm doing at at most traditional VC firms in the Valley. Uh, and my background, you know, hasn't by any means been a traditional one either. Um, so I think the fact that both I knew people at Founders Fund who had, you know, come out of PayPal, they had a very different approach. Uh, they were very founder friendly in, in terms of how they uh, went after you know putting businesses together and working with people, and then they you know they were really willing to to you know take a bit of a flyer on me and give me a shot, um, you know in ways that I think most other VC firms wouldn't have been quite so uh, freewheeling or free thinking. Um, and how, so how, how long have you been there now? Uh, I've been working with them for six months, and uh, it's been a pretty crazy uh, last six months. <laughs> been very active last six months. Um, it, to me, it so, would seem like, given the amount of just the amount of attention and, and, and the, the network that you build out there, that it would have been a tremendous catalyst for the founders fund. Is that? I mean, have you been have you been getting a lot of interest in potential you know, deal flow and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, I think it was really a good match. I mean, so I I enjoyed doing a lot of uh, you know sort of entrepreneurship and education and you know technology. Uh, cheerleading, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, along with the investing stuff. Um, and so I've been I've been doing a number of user groups and conferences for many years. But in the last few years, I've been working with O'Reilly and, and a few other people doing uh, you know conferences around internet marketing, around uh, Facebook and social networking platforms, and then around you know startup techniques and metrics and analytics. Um, and you know it's a little bit unusual to sort of combine investing with the type of you know events and conferences approach that I've been I've been doing, um, but that was you know one of the things that that Founders Fund was looking for was this combined sort of role in both entrepreneurial outreach and and marketing evangelism as well as being able to identify you know early stage companies that were um, a little bit earlier than their traditional you know Series A type of focus and, and so that fit really well I've, I've been doing. You know, a lot of, you know, startup-related, you know, efforts and, and mentoring and things over the last five years. And really, you know, the chance to have a relatively small amount of capital but a lot of freedom, um, you know, is a, is a really great uh, way for, I think, me to, to break into the more, you know, traditional investing world. And is that, I mean, is that your, your goal now to become a VC? You know, I. Well, I mean, I guess I, you I are a VC, but you know, do you want to be John Doerr or someone like that? Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know that I'll ever likely end up as John Doerr, and you know, heaven forbid that I ever am that successful. That would be terrific. Um, but um, you know, I, I sort of feel like at some point I might still do my own startup again, and and that would be fun. But um, what I, what I really enjoyed is is pretty much since leaving PayPal, even while I was simply hired, um, is I I got the chance to invest in a lot of. Uh, really fun startups, and as a personal uh, angel investor, you know, was in about 12 or 13 deals. Um, and I just really found that I enjoyed that a lot. It was just great working with working with companies that were sort of between two to ten people. Um, a lot of the 
challenges they face in kind of getting getting off the ground, getting a product out the door, figuring out the online marketing strategy and how they do customer acquisition, you know, maybe starting to get into revenue generating and, and profit optimization. Those those types of exercises were really fun. Uh, they were mentally stimulating and challenging. They were they were based on some things that I think I had a little bit of experience in, and you know, for better or for worse, that that made it easy for me to get involved as an investor was helping them solve some of the product and marketing problems. Um, and after after doing that, you know, kind of in an amateur profession uh, on the side for the last three or four years, I just I just found like you know I I I really was less interested in going back and doing my own startup and more interested in helping additional startups. Um, and so probably about a year and a half ago, I started thinking about how I could do that on a more regular basis. Um, and then you know initially I'd been looking at doing my own fund, and then the opportunity with Founders Fund uh, came along and really ended up being a great fit. So, so how does, I mean, exactly people, people are listening to the interview or reading this, they're going to be interested in, well, I want to know, like, how, how do they get funded? Um, how do they get funded? <laughs> well, you know, that's well, the question everyone asks you. Dude, you got money. Yeah. you got money to hand out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. And, I, you know, I try and make myself accessible. But I think the thing you find is, as an early stage investor, you, you probably get more inquiries than any other type of uh, – Later stage investors, so you have less capital to work with, but you get more inbound requests than anyone. <laughs> um, and so, really, you know, fighting a battle with uh, with email and other types of requests is always, you know, uh, an interesting uh, an interesting task. Um, but I, I do think one thing that's been really cool for me is, uh, you know, and people sort of say this all the time, but you you source deals through your network and through people that you know, and um, you know, part of the reason that I think I, I use a lot of social uh, networking tools and environments like Facebook and Twitter and, and LinkedIn and other environments is it allows you to extend your reach in very interesting ways. And, you know, there's no way that I could sort of keep up with the level of volume that I think, you know, most traditional VC firms, you know, the logic is more like they, they look at a 1,000 deals, talk to a 100, and do 10 per year. Um, and and that's, you know, a very volume-intensive, uh, you know, review and an analysis type of uh, story. And, and, you know, nothing against that, that approach. I think that definitely yields, you know, pretty good results, assuming that your filter is, is tight. But for me, what the story has really been is, you know, I, I basically have a pretty extensive network of friends who are, you know, either engineering types or marketing types or, you know, people in product uh, and, in a lot of ways, I use them as a proxy, um, and so my my process ends up being I probably don't look at you know anywhere near a thousand deals a year. Um, I probably look personally at maybe you know a hundred or so, maybe two hundred, something like that. Um, but but the interesting thing is, I would say my extended network probably looks at ten thousand deals a year, <laughs> and you know through the process of them recommending and filtering stuff to me, uh, particularly when I get a deal that's recommended from two trusted sources, uh, and in many cases, you know, three is the magic number. When I see a deal that's been recommended independently from three different people that I know, I, I sort of, you know, wake up and pay attention. And, and that's, it sounds like a very, you know, sort of passive and, and uninvolved process, and it's a little strange. Um, but at the same time, I think I'm I'm sort of using the crowd as a way to source. Yeah, deals, using so, social uh, proof and the crowd. Yeah, so you're letting your friends who you trust vote, and that's how, that's a little bit like how Ron Conway does it, isn't it? Yeah, and and it's funny that you bring him up. I would say he's one of the people that that is probably is most adept at using those type of techniques. And you know, 
Ron is certainly an amazing guy. I wouldn't say he's innately a technology-focused guy, which is, is strange to say. I mean, he came out of a sales background at Intel, I believe. Um, very savvy and smart guy, but I think he's he's more adept at an understanding how people operate than he, than how technology operates necessarily. Um, um, and he's, very, he's the guy that doesn't use email, right? Uh, well, no, no, no. He's he's very facile with email. I mean, he'll he'll definitely be uh, he'll return emails quite quickly. As a matter of fact, oh, okay. um, you know. So I think people you know tend to you know judge him as being not as as technically sophisticated as maybe you know the the type of other angel investor that you expect. But at the same time, he's he's savvy in ways that are are probably more interesting and more unique than than most people would would ever come up with. And so, you know, he's pretty much been that you know the original person of that technique of being very, very aggressive with lots of small bets. Um, and there are other people, I think, who sort of emulated that pattern as well. You know, Josh Koppelman at First Round Capital, um, you know, Paul Graham now with Y Combinator stuff, Jeff Clavier with his fund, uh, and a few other people where they, they've been very nimble and very, you know, I would say quick to uh, write a small check. Um, and then, you know, continue to follow that up with more effort as the, as the business grows. Um, but I would say, you know, my, my process is not to have some huge investment thesis and, uh, you know, you know, a bunch of associates who analyze deals and kind of decide, okay, this is the best and most optimal deal. Uh, it's really a process of using a trusted network of people that I am familiar with who, you know, have sort of given something a thumbs up. And then, you know, it's almost, you know, zen-like in a way that once I've sort of heard uh, a company name from two different people and certainly from three different people, that's when I start to zero in. Um so, so and, referrals you know, is what you're looking for, and, and and multiple referrals from from people within your network. Yeah, and and so it's a weird thing to say, you know, get to know someone that I know and convince them that you're you've got a cool company. But that's you know that's certainly part of it. Um, the other thing. Uh, now now really, you're putting it on me because I know you a little bit. And now they're <laughs> going to be hitting me up. So that's that's not fair. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, well, I mean, it's just impossible to manage the amount of inbound requests that you get. I, no, I, I get. I'm it. certainly. I'm certainly always happy to sit down and, you know, take a look at stuff with people, but, you know, it is And it is I'm happy to review stuff too, but obviously most, most <laughs> people know when they come and ask on stuff like this that the answer, you've got to expect the answer to be no, and maybe we can look at it, maybe there's something there, but... Um, well, the answer is never you know. no, it's always uh, maybe, <laughs> or that's interesting, we'll talk to you later. But, um, but the thing that really has made a difference for me is I, I started doing these talks and presentations around startup metrics uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and in particular... One presentation that I did up in Seattle one time that was a sort of five-minute video uh, that I ended up calling Startup Metrics for Pirates um, and a couple of slide presentations was really this, you know, five-step, you know, methodology for analyzing how your different stages of your business work and how to, you know, break up the product uh, and marketing efforts into those areas. Um, that's that's really well two things one is it's given people a language and a way to sort of talk about their business that i'm already familiar with um and it also gives me a sense that they kind of understand you know the perspective that i'm coming at and how i think about you know their businesses and so, and so for a lot of ways that's kind of given me uh, uh you know an extended presence you know on the web for them to say you know well first thing i talk about when people come to me is like well have you looked at any of my presentations and do you understand what the approach is uh, and if they say no, I say, great, go check out those presentations. If you don't think I'm crazy, then come back to me after you've read them. Um, right. But these days, a lot of people that I talk to, uh, you know, I don't want to say they're regurgitating my, you know, mantras right back at me, but they but they understand the, the framework 
that I laid out, and it just makes it a lot easier and quick to evaluate, you know, how those businesses might operate. Um, and so I, I think for me that's actually helped quite a bit in that, you know, again, I may not have as as large amount of time as other, you know, firms that are evaluating a lot of stuff, um, but I tend to see stuff in a framework and a language that I already understand, and they have already sort of put their businesses into that framework. Hmm. Um, and so that's that's, yeah, that's I haven't looked at those lot those out. I've seen I've seen that you got those out there, I've just not looked at them. Yeah, and then um, I've, I've more recently I've done a presentation on how to pitch a VC that is maybe not not safe for work consumption, but <laughs> a lot of people have started to use that as a template pitch deck. And so between you know startup metric pirates and that standard how to pitch a VC deck, uh, you know, it makes it easier for me to consume you know more information quickly from from new startups. Now we had a funny thing that happened on uh, Facebook. Uh, I think it was only a couple of days ago, where um, <laughs> you put up a really cute picture of your kids, and one of them was not was reluctantly uh, giving some cake to the other kid, and you titled it "The Reluctant Share." And it was just a great photo. You got very cute <laughs> kids, and you could really see that your daughter she did not want to give that cake to to her brother. And and then and then I come along and be a smartass and write under that. So she's a future VC in training or something. Um, I was I was laughing my ass off about that. I felt kind of bad about it afterwards because I know that's a lot of people in your network to see that. But you made an interesting comment responding to that. And it, 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 I mean, I've not worked with investors. I'm, I'm interested in your response on that. I mean, we, we, there is obviously the term vulture investors and, that, you know, it can be like the PayPal situation where the investors end up making all the money and not the, not the entrepreneurs. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on the reluctant share and, and, and the value there, especially in today's environment where things are changing? Well, I think I uh, I can't remember the exact comment I made. It was something like, you know, VCs shouldn't be reluctant about sharing. They should actually be rather generous about sharing. Is that something like that that I? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said something like that. Yeah, but um, um, I I think you know I have a maybe different philosophy about you know how venture capital is changing and what you know that should be uh, what the philosophy should be there. I mean, it's really. You know, people talk about sort of the downturn in the financial markets and how that's affected things, and, you know, people sort of presume that there's this downturn in the Internet market. And I actually am sort of, you know, aggressively optimistic there. I don't I don't really think that much of the, you know, the financial downturn that's happened in the mortgage markets and financial services and other areas has had a huge – hasn't really had that huge an impact on, on Internet businesses. And, you know, the reason I kind of say that is because, you know, for the most part, Internet businesses are not capital intensive, and so we don't deal with a lot of debt, um, which is what caused a lot of problems in, you know, many of the other, you know, uh, more traditional markets. Um, and at the same time, you know, there was a lot of capital already raised. Um, the one thing that I think has been really, you know, a big issue for the VC community is, you know, their their limited partners, the people who invest in, in VCs funds, um, have had a pretty substantial upheaval in their world. And so... You know, a lot of uh, pension funds and institutions that invest in VCs, you know, have found their their net worth or their fund values have gone down by a third, if not more than a third, over the last year. And and what that's caused is also, you know, not not just a different sort of way to look about, you know, how is venture capital performing, but it's sort of changed their asset allocations and and also sort of changed you know, their philosophy about how much risk they should be taking in, in these other markets. Um, and as a result of that, um, really I would say we're in quite a bit of upheaval in the VC world where, um, you know, I, I, I don't think 
it's actually any uh, overstatement to say that maybe one-third of the existing VC community today won't be around in two or three years. Um, and so, as, as a, and so as how a do you fit into that environment where, I mean, the, the cost, the barrier entries for starting Internet companies is so low now, I mean, right. do we need you? Uh, no, I think that's actually the, the point. I mean, I don't think that most VCs are relevant as, as investors in the Internet uh, space. Um, so both – uh, both the case that I don't think there needs to be as much investment in any company. I mean, you know, traditionally, historically, there's maybe been 10 to $50 million that you put into companies that might eventually get acquired to go public. And, and for a lot of, you know, software companies previously where that was, you know, marketing intensive or, you know, production intensive or there were large CapEx costs in, you know, either uh, hardware companies or chip companies, um, if you contrast that to sort of Internet companies these days, um, you know, certainly the last five years, if not ten years, the costs of a lot of open source software have come down dramatically. You're not you're not paying a lot for database software. You're not paying a lot for web server software and other, uh, you know, almost free or close to free components. And, and for the most part, your cost structure is really headcount um, and to a lesser extent, you know, internet marketing costs for acquisition. Um, but you can... You can build a lot of companies these days for, you know, under two to five million in capital. You can certainly get the product built for a lot less than that. Um, and so it's actually rather challenging in many ways to put more than $10 million to work uh, for a lot of these Internet businesses. Um, and, you know, there's no question there's still a lot of businesses that once they take off do consume and, and could use more than that. Um, but But I think it's really changed how, you know, the VCs are relevant to the startup community. If, if you look at the way historically VCs were involved, they kind of, you know, at least back in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s, they kind of came out of, you know, the chip and the hardware and the software businesses, uh, and people who had been successful there uh, moved into the VC business. Uh, and so in a lot of cases, the people who were VC investors were experienced operators that came out of that industry. Uh, an interesting thing happened in the 80s and 90s was there became this more... You know, uh, and Ron tradition. Conway totally fits that. He came out of Intel and, and is an annual investor. Right. So that, that totally right. totally reflects what you're saying. Right. But in the 80s and 90s, a lot of folks came into the profession that were more traditional, you know, finance and money management folks. They were people who had MBAs. They came out of, you know, the East Coast sort of financial services world. Uh, and not to say that that's exclusively the type of folks that happened, but they were more about uh, money-based operations and scaling businesses. And so a lot of the expertise that they brought to the table was more in balance sheet uh, sort of restructuring, organizational dynamics and how they would grow the company, um, sort of looking at how they got the company to, you know, basic level of break even and then profitability. And it was, it was sort of more engineering a company from looking at a spreadsheet or looking at an org chart than it was looking at a spec or looking at, you know, sort of a user interface design. Um, and then something interesting happened, which was the the Internet came along and probably, you know, somewhere around 95 or at least the late 90s, a lot of the, the customer acquisition methods stopped being enterprise sales focused and stopped being sort of offline marketing campaign focused and started being more about Internet distribution via email, uh, via search, via social networks, via viral marketing. And... What's really, I think, unique now, and I sort of make this, I make this statement as, be, as one someone who's been a former engineer and developer, the scarce, the scarce resource and skill set in most internet businesses. Um, while, while it's certainly important that engineering and programming talent is is very important, the scarce resource is really around user interface design, 
and around internet-based marketing skills. Um, and it's, it's strange to say that, but but for at least consumer net businesses and maybe businesses that are focused on, you know, small business, long-tail business, um, the cost of customer acquisition, the techniques of customer acquisition, uh, the costs are down, the techniques are, are sort of more advanced. Um, and a lot of the ways that companies are either, you know, made or broken have to do with how the customer experiences the, the product from a user interface standpoint and how many people experience it from an Internet marketing standpoint. And the strange thing is when you start having businesses that succeed or fail based on a lot of user interface design and a lot of Internet marketing techniques, there's just not that many people who've been around building those businesses who are in the investment community. Um, you know, and, and it's started to change, but, you know, the people who are successful at doing a lot of that Internet uh, customer acquisition or search-based acquisition, you know, probably got rich uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, and some of them started doing a little bit of angel investing, maybe got hurt in the downturn, and a few of them made it into, you know, sort of the professional VC investment community. Um, and so what I would argue today is that, if you're a startup looking for an investor, you don't need a lot of money, right? And so your, the angel investor community has magnified itself in, you know, in value. Um, you know, there's a lot more people from the angel investment community that are, that are in the market. Uh, there's less capital necessary from the VC community. And, and more importantly, it's not just the capital that's really, you know, the critical factor for, for startups to decide, but what type of skills are coming to the table with those investors. And so you see, you know, investors, in many respects, like, you know, I think Jeff Clavier and First Round Capital and, you know, maybe Ron and, and Baseline and a few others um, have all had a lot of experience doing these Internet marketing businesses. And as a startup, you really, you know, you're probably going to get better terms from an Internet, uh, from an angel investor and a small uh, or a small VC, and you're going to get better expertise from somebody who's come out of one of these Internet uh, in our right. marketing business. Now, we're going to have to jump in because I know you've got a hard stop at the end of this call and there's an important topic sure. we haven't covered yet and that's uh, geeks on a plane. Now, by the time people are <laughs> looking at this interview, we're actually going to be on the plane because um, I'm yeah. flying out from the Caribbean to go out to Japan and China with you. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the, the trip and, and the, the, the ideas behind sure. it? Sure. Um, well, I, again, I would say this has been more of a, you know, an independent uh, dream of mine was to get a bunch of people together who are all, you know, sort of geeky and, and go do a trip to places, you know, that we don't normally get to. My my wife is Japanese, and I have the opportunity to go over to Tokyo and visit our family, uh, our in-laws over there pretty much every year. Um, and that was always really fascinating to me. I got the chance to meet some, you know, startups and entrepreneurs in Tokyo and to see what they were doing. Um, but I've always wanted to travel a little bit more and see, you know, parts of Asia and, you know, eventually hopefully parts of India. In the last year, I've, I've also got to see some places in Europe as well. Um, and so there's all these people who are coming over to the valley from, you know, their local environment and really coming to the valley as, as this kind of mecca place where they get to find out about, you know, how Silicon Valley software startups and, and Internet businesses get run. But I've always thought it would be interesting to go the other way and have people from here sort of go to other, you know, geographies and see what the, what the entrepreneurship culture is like over there, you know, what the funding environments are like, what the, you know, actual successful businesses are like. And so, you know, this whole idea for Geeks on a Plane was really almost like a traveling roadshow of sorts um, where we could talk a little bit about here's the types of businesses and the Internet platforms and social networking platforms that have been successful in the States and, and the funding environment and models that have come out of Silicon Valley, uh, but also to learn about what's happening in Japan, what's happening in China, and, you know, in the future maybe Korea and other geographies as well. 
and kind of get a survey of the investment climate, a survey of the startup opportunity um, up and markets, and, and hear from some successful entrepreneurs, you know, now that have actually accomplished quite, you know, significant things in those uh, geographies as well. And so it's really more of a cultural exchange opportunity around entrepreneurship uh, and uh, both a great way for us to kind of talk about what happens in Silicon Valley and, and learn what happens in these other, other countries, and in particular in you know, sort of the gaming and mobile platforms and maybe social uh, networking platforms. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's been happening out of uh, the Asian geographies and, and startup businesses there that I think, you know, the U.S. could learn from. And it looks like you've had tremendous response to the trip. We we have. I, I must say when I first uh, was getting it together, I would have been happy if we had five or ten people uh, get on board. <laughs> um, but we've actually had over 30 people uh, sign up to do it. And, you know, probably if we had a little bit longer, I, I got a ton of, of comments from people who said that, you know, just a little bit more planning and notice they would have also come with us. So I think we'll probably end up doing it again. I've already, I've already started thinking about doing a trip to Europe in the fall and probably Southeast Asia and India in uh, next spring. Um, but I think the so format it's going is going to be an ongoing fun. series. Is it geeks on a plane to all over the place? I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think the the thing about a lot of people here is, you know, they might not explore those environments independently, but you know, within you know a comfort zone of some other geeks that they're familiar with, and also within the comfort zone of having people on the ground in each of those geographies that they can get to know. Uh, I think it becomes a lot more approachable for people to you know go out and, and see places like Beijing and Shanghai and Tokyo that they might not you know get to on their own. And the thing I didn't get, which you um, kind of helped me understand in an email, is that it's actually it's not just the going into the places; it's also the time on the plane. You get to hang out with everyone on the plane too. Yeah, and I do think we're we're probably not going to get a lot of sleep for this whole trip. <laughs> um, but it it is probably one of the best. Uh, you know, parts of the trip itself is just the opportunity to to spend traveling with people and really get to know them. You know, in sort of this traveling caravan of uh, of craziness. Uh, my only regret is we won't have internet access on the plane at least this time around. But I I'm absolutely trying to make sure that that happens once we have the next one. So we will be a live traveling blogging social media experiment. Um, you know, it's great. We've gotten support from both TechCrunch uh, and a bunch of other places that are going to help us promote the effort that we're doing. So my cool. my goal is nothing less than to make everyone forget that Robert Scoble ever existed for 10 days. <laughs> I don't think that's possible, but maybe, maybe, maybe we'll achieve it. Um, anything well, you want to add in closing? Um, I guess, you know, I, it's a couple of things that we didn't cover that I spend a lot of time on, the startup to startup uh, events that I've been putting together for the last year with a few friends, and then also a new new effort that we're getting together called Finance for Founders. And and both of those are really attempts to kind of use the um, you know existing knowledge of the startup community, both in terms of you know product and technology ideas, business and marketing ideas, and then maybe you know finance and, and legal structure, and really make that a more regular um, process for the new folks and the rookies who are building their businesses to get to know each other. Um, it's you know one thing about Silicon Valley is it's always been very uh open and and people are quite willing to share you know sort of what's worked with them and what their successes and what their failures have been um but everybody's always been so busy doing their own startups i don't I don't know that there's been as much of this you know structured framework for people to understand more about what's going on there and i I think in the last couple of years that's starting to you know to fill in i you know a few years back, uh, Guy Kawasaki and Garage, uh, Garage.com were trying to do a lot of things around entrepreneurial education, um, and then a few other environments that I've been involved with, both uh, S-Face and SD Forum had done that. 
but now I think you've got more professionally focused efforts. Sometimes they're investor-driven, where really we're trying to retool and streamline the process of creating businesses. And, you know, I, I think we're – I wouldn't say we're scientific by any means yet, but we are trying to get a little bit more regular and um, sort of rigorous in our products and, and our process. And so, you know, things like, you know, a lot of the methodology that Eric Reese is talking about with Lean Startup, some techniques that Eric, uh, Andrew Chen has talked about on his blog, uh, a few other VCs that I think are really intelligent and people who are, you know, again, starting to think about how do I optimize the process of building a business. Um, I'm really – those topics are things that I, I care a lot about and spend a lot of time thinking about. So, um, you know, both with the Startup Metrics Pirates talk and the, and the other conferences that we've been putting together – uh, it's really around building the craft of entrepreneurship and and making that you know uh, a business in itself and an education uh, in itself. Cool. Okay. Um, well, Dave, thanks very much. Thanks for your time, Adrian. Thanks for having me.